Hi there, and welcome to Grief is My Superpower. I'm Mark Lemon, award-winning children's author, bereavement ambassador, and your host for this podcast. Each week, I'll be interviewing incredible people that get open and honest about their own experience with grief. When I was 12 years old, my dad was murdered, and my life changed forever. I try to explore with my guests if it's possible to live a happy and fulfilled life after the death of a loved one. You can find me as Mark Lemon Official on Instagram and at the Lemon Drop Books website. For this episode, I speak with author, speaker and grief and loss coach, Hope Edelman. Hope speaks with me about the ways in which we can navigate grief and how her own experiences have shaped her outlook on life. You can find Hope on Instagram and Twitter as Hope Edelman. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. By doing this, it will help us to reach more people in need of support at a tough time. This podcast is in support of children's bereavement charity, Winston Switch. Okay, so as mentioned in my introduction, today I'm speaking with someone that I am honored to have on the podcast, and I know that um, you're all going to get so much out of this, as well as myself, and it's best-selling author Hope Edelman. How are you? I'm well today, Mark. Thank you for having me on. That's no problem at all. And also, we must tell the listeners that we're actually doing this from different countries, um, which I think I've done this once before of speaking to America and, uh, you know, which makes it even more exciting, of course. That's right. I'm sitting in Los Angeles right now. It's bright and early in the morning. Yeah, it's actually, we've been blessed today in Bristol, so the sun is shining. So that's uh, fantastic. Um, but for the listeners, could you just give them maybe a brief as to who you are and what you do, please? Yes, yes. I am an author, a speaker, and a grief and loss coach here in California. I wrote the book Motherless Daughters back in the mid-1990s, which has gone through two revisions right now, or two updates, and has created support groups and networks all over the world for women who lost mothers when they were young, which was my story. I was 17 when my mother died, and uh, there were no books for girls like me who had lost a mom. All the books assumed that you'd be in your 40s or 50s when that occurred because uh, statistically that was much more probable. So I wrote Motherless Daughters and then a number of more books. And recently I wrote a new book called The Aftergrief, which is just about to come out in the UK. It's already out in the US. And that's about what loss looks like over a lifetime, how it's not something that goes away or that we get over or put down, but it really turns into something else that I call the aftergrief. It's this year will be 40 years since my mother died. I can't believe I can even say that. But I still think of her all the time, and I can still tear up on occasion. And that's, to me, what the aftergrief is. Yeah, and I guess that was kind of leading into my next question, really, is, you know, your own experience with grief. And and I know that your mother died when you were 17, and, and also your father when you were 40. That's um, right. And I guess I was really interested to know, in terms of how you felt grief at the various times in your life. So obviously you were 17 and then 40. And I'm just wondering how you found those differences, of, particularly with ages, you know, and how you perhaps coped at those particular times. 
Right. Well, they were profoundly different because of my age, and they were also different because of the era in which I lost a parent. But the first time I was 17, and I was still, you know, semi-dependent on the adults around me to be role models for grieving and also to help me find resources. And uh, that didn't occur. But it was also 1981, and there were almost no resources to be found. There wasn't even hospice in my community yet. There were we were still a good 10, 15 years away from grief services. So at that time in the 1980s, families were really very much left to cope on their own. Maybe you had a religious community or an extended family that helped you. We had neither. So we really were left to soldier on and adapt as, as best we could on our own. But when my father died, it was early 2005, and there were so many more resources available at that time. There were grief centers, there were books. And I, of course, because I'd been doing this work at that time for quite a while, had a network of people and knew how important it was for me to process the grief, to talk to others, to write about it. But I also had really different relationships with my parents too. You know, I was very close with my mom and was emotionally dependent on her in some ways. And when my father died, I was married, I had two children, I was very, you know, I was self-sustaining. And and he was, my mother was 42 when she died, and my father was 75. And to me, that also made a world of difference. My mother's death was what's called an out-of-time loss, and there's such an injustice surrounding that. And even though my father still at 75 is considered on the young side these days to die, um, I did feel that he had had a much fuller life and had had access to more opportunities or more choices to make than my mother had gotten. And, and so all of those things conspired for, I would not say my losing my dad was easy. Losing your second parent is never easy, but it, and it was heartbreaking in many ways, but somehow I could make sense of it in a way that it was much harder to make sense of my mother's death in 1981. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, my my dad died in 1992, and you know, and and again, obviously, it's, it wasn't 1981, but their their resources were very minimal. You know, when you're comparing to today, um, and I guess I just wanted to touch very briefly on the work that you've been doing, the incredible work that you've been doing over the last sort of 25 years, um, and you know, what originally spurred you to want to start writing about this subject. Um, now you know I'm presum I'm presumptuous in saying it might be the death of your mother, um, as as you know, as a lot of these things can trigger us to to want to kind of talk about this subject more and more. But um, yeah, what what was it that really sparked um, it inside of you? Oh, I think that you will find this to be a very unexpected answer, um, but it was a combination of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen and um, a professor I had in graduate school who's now the Poet Laureate of Iowa. Um, it was, um, I was very shut down talking about my mother, writing about my mother, and but I was in a graduate program in nonfiction writing and I took a course in portraiture by, by, with Mary Swander, who was a visiting professor at the University of Iowa. She's um, a, a professor emeritus now at Iowa State University, and she is the Poet Laureate of Iowa. And Mary's assignment was for us, everyone in the class, to choose one person to spend the entire semester writing about. And it could be someone we knew or someone we didn't know. It's someone we wanted to research and explore. And so I chose Bruce Springsteen because his music had had such a, an influence on 
me and my friends during our teenage years. And in writing about Bruce Springsteen, I started writing about the boy I dated the year after my mother died, who was an inveterate Bruce Springsteen fan. And from there, I started writing about the year after my mother died and her death. And I remember going to Mary's office for a, a, you know, a, a conference at one point and saying, I'm way off topic here. I am, you know, I'm not writing really about Bruce Springsteen anymore. Should I drop the class? And she said, absolutely not. I'm giving you license to keep keep writing about this. It's important. And I told her in that office, this was the early 1990s, I said, you know, I went looking for a book for about mother loss to help me after my mother died when I was 17 and, and I couldn't find one. And I'm starting to think in my mind that, you know, maybe I, I'm here in a graduate program. Maybe I should consider writing one. And Mary said, I was in my early 20s when my mother died. I took care of her at the end. If you want to write that book, I will help you. And that was the beginning of Motherless Daughters and me writing because the, the class was so wonderful and supportive. It hadn't really occurred to me that people would receive this um, news of my mother's death, which to me by then, because I'd been so quiet about it, felt like a source of shame, you know, like I was breaking the silence. I'm not supposed to talk about this. But the students in the class were so incredibly supportive and receptive, and and so was Mary. And and it was the first time I thought, well, actually, maybe people really do want to and even need to hear about this. I can relate to that in 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 lots of ways. By you know, so 2017, I was asked to write about my own experience in the murder of my father um, for an article in the Guardian newspaper and. And it was only until writing about that, obviously it's not writing a book, but it, it kind of opened a Pandora's box in terms of um, finding how cathartic it was to, to just, uh, you know, get these emotions out, but share my experience with others. Um, and, I, and I think it kind of feels a bit like how, how you were when you first started, you know, writing yourself. And, and what was the response like, Mark? Did you hear from people? Did you get feedback that that told you that, you know, this was something that people wanted to hear about? Yeah, it was. It was. And I think that's why it kind of spurred me on to keep talking about it is because there were lots of messages from people who, who felt very isolated in their grief and who really struggled to, um, to find the words to articulate their grief themselves. And so when they sort of see somebody else, you know, writing about their own sort of traumatic losses, you know, particularly as a, a young boy, um, I think it can um, help and inspire others to to want to do the same thing, can't it? Absolutely. And especially when men talk about it. There was a series about two years ago, uh, BBC Radio did, Tony Early did interviews with men who'd lost their mothers. That was his experience as well. And they're just extraordinary. If you haven't, if you haven't seen the video yet of Tony Early and Martin Lewis talking about the death of Martin Lewis's mom, it's really incredible. I saw it and it was just breathtaking. I think I've watched it five or six times since then. And I've also repeatedly watched the CNN interview in the US between Anderson Cooper and Stephen Colbert, both talking about the deaths of their fathers when they were young. And sometimes it only takes one interview or one person, you know, to break through that silence, to give other people permission to talk about their losses. And, I, you know, what we also should talk about is the, the cultural relativity of grief. I think here in the U.S. we were talking about it perhaps just a little bit before the U.K., but you all in England and, and, and Britain have far outpaced the United States right now in making this a, a, a public issue. And my friends in the U.K. say that, you know, it was 
it, it is due in no small part to uh, the princes talking about Diana's death on the 20th anniversary, that it sort of opened some floodgates for more people to feel that it was acceptable to talk about their losses, especially during childhood or their teens or their early years. But about three years, almost three years ago in the spring of 2018, um, I was in England. I did a a one-day symposium in London for motherless daughters And we had, um, I think we originally had capacity for 60 to 80 women, but a few days before I did an interview with the BBC about the symposium and the response was extraordinary. At that point, we had a very long waiting list. We expanded capacity to its maximum, which I think was somewhere between 100 and 120 women. And it was really exceptional how many women came in because they wanted to meet other women who'd lost their mothers. They wanted to be in the company of other women who understood that very specific kind of loss. And um, there are support groups in the UK. Right now, they're all meeting virtually, of course. But in London, there was a very active one that was meeting in person. And here in the US, we have a number of them. Around the world, there are about 60 motherless daughters groups. And you know, I'm hoping that it will expand to accommodate all, all adults who were bereaved as children because so many of us are still carrying around unattended or congested grief from childhood because we didn't have the opportunity to talk about or process our losses back then, especially if they occurred in the 20th century. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, like you say, the princes, Harry and William, through speaking about their you know, the death of their mother so publicly has actually, you know, has helped open up the conversation for a lot of men, you know, and, and that goes for talking about mental health as well in this country, which, you know, for many years has been a sort of a stiff up, stiff upper lip sort of mentality, um, which is why, you know, I find it quite interesting that I do still get, you know, only a couple of men have been on the podcast, you know, and, and the majority have been um, women, but, you know, I'm just wondering what sort of change and shift you've seen over the last 25 years when talking about this subject, you know, and, and like you say, there are slight differences with uh, between America and, and the UK, but I'm just wondering how you've seen the, the change. You know, I'd like to say that I've seen an enormous change. I've seen a big change in terms of the services that are provided. And in, in the UK, you have really extraordinary, fantastic trusts for children's bereavement, like Child Bereavement UK and Winston's Wish and uh, Grief Encounter, all of them. Um, I haven't seen an enormous shift in talking about grief. Uh, It still is something that people think is an interior, individual, private experience. And, you know, in the past, before the 20th century, grief was a communal and social experience. People came together to grieve a death as the loss of one of their own. You know, the village came together. We really lost that at the beginning of the 20th century um, in in no small part because of the combination of World War One psychoanalysis and the Spanish flu pandemic, interestingly enough. So exactly 100 years later, we are having a, a massive, you know, collective grief experience. And it is my fervent hope that we come out of this pandemic with a different appreciation for what grief is and how to process it together than the collective did back in 1919, because that is when most of our mourning rituals disappeared and people were left alone with their grief. And so I think 
at least what we're seeing now, what I'm seeing right now, I haven't seen that much change over the past 25 years, except in terms of services. But what I'm seeing now, right now, is um, an appreciation that we need to mourn our dead. And I'm hoping that the funerals and the memorial services and the celebrations of life that are now being postponed will be picked up on the other side of the pandemic, even if a loved one died two years ago, and that this social aspect of grief will come back. And we're hearing a lot about Zoom funerals and what a poor substitute they are for the real thing. And I agree, there is nothing like being able to comfort a mourner in person, to be there with your body, you know, to embody the grief together. But I do hope that in the future, we will move toward a more hybrid kind of memorial service where people can come in through live stream or through Zoom because it allows people who can't be there because they can't travel on short notice or because they can't leave work to still be part of the village that grieves the loss of one of their own. And that expands you know, the, the number of people who can actually be there to participate in that event. So... That that I see as a po- I actually see that as a positive change. I hope. <laughs> I'm completely with you, and you know, recently we've been touched by, you know, a huge loss as well. My wife's father died um, a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, through through sort of a short illness, but so so everything you just talked about is kind of really um, resonating with with me and what we're going through at the moment because we're planning the funeral, which is on the eighth of March, and. You know, and and I do think that there are positives for Zoom and people being able to stream in because, you know, because my my father my father-in-law was from uh, Jamaica, and so you do have a lot of people um, who would love to to tune in and watch the funeral, and so I think it is it's a, it's a new way of doing things which people obviously have to adapt to, um, but it does feel that the pandemic has has kind of uh, has awakened a lot of people in terms of um, talking about this subject a bit more I think purely because it's always on the telly and on the news but um, and you can't it's you do struggle to escape it but uh, it does feel like a a slight positive shift Um, but I just want to talk about your fantastic new book The After Grief Finding Your Way Along the Long Arc of Loss um, which like you say is being published on the 4th of March and you know, and I, and I have been very thankful to receive a copy, and it's fantastic. And you know, I know you touched on it very briefly at the beginning, but just wondering whether you could, um, you know, just tell the listeners more about the book and, and what prompted you to to want to write it. Well, I had been. I think of this book as motherless daughters for grown-ups in a way. I mean, I, I did recognize that a lot of what because I've, I've been working with women one-on-one and in groups and leading retreats for a number of years, and I was seeing certain patterns emerge that were um, that were very unique to this population, but also common to any adult who had lost a child, which was how the loss echoed and resonated even decades later. And I had seen effects of that in my own life. You know, I had, a, I had written Motherless Mothers about the effect that early loss had on how women raise their children. But over the years, I've also met a number of men who've lost their mothers and men and women who lost fathers when they were young. You know, I'm kind of the parent loss person at dinner parties and everyone wants to tell me their stories about losing a parent when they were young. But also, you know, any major loss, how that shapes us developmentally when we're young um, and even in, into adulthood. 
and what it's going to look like and feel like 20, 30, 40 years later. And I couldn't find, again, I could not find a book that adequately, I thought, addressed that issue. It is something we carry with us, but we do have a lot of choice about how we carry it. And I was also very influenced by the research on post-traumatic growth, which is an area of psychology that talks about how a major loss or trauma can become a springboard for personal meaning and um, purpose later in life. And I felt like that's kind of what I'd done by writing Motherless Daughters and being in this field and, and helping coordinate these groups and building a community. So um, I thought maybe I have something to say about what grief looks like all these years later. And when I started doing interviews, it was very similar to what happened with Motherless Daughters in the early 90s. I found that a lot of a number of people were saying the same thing. Um, they were They were telling the same story more or less after we got past these, you know, the superficial details of who died and when, you know, talking about how it kept showing up in their lives year, years later, how it affected their parenting, how they felt it affected their relationships, how um, it became part of their worldview you know, get folded into how just how they see the world. But also what I saw over time was what I call the missing elements of grief, which is that once the sorrow and the despair and the feelings of loss of control had dissipated. Over time, people talked about how they had such a deeper appreciation for life and the insight and the wisdom that they felt they had developed um, and the meaning and the purpose. And I was really interested in exploring that as well. And how did they experience that? And how were they putting that out to in, in how are they putting that into action? out in the world. And a number of people talked about how they wanted to be of service to others or how they felt that life is fragile and it's very short and they wanted to accomplish things quickly. And so I, I really, that's that's what was my impetus for the book. But I had a hard time with the title. I really did. I mean, we played around with a number of different titles. It took me four years to write this book. And in the end, it was the pandemic, which, because I was under lockdown in Los Angeles, I just sat at my dining room table every day with no distractions and cranked out about half of this book. But it took me a number of years to really figure out what I'm writing about and, and what are we going to call it? And I remember one day I was, I live in a canyon in Los Angeles. I was driving down to the ocean and it was really, you know, just noodling around in my mind, what do, what do we call this period that comes after grief? Because I think grief is a fine term for that first year of disorientation and, and despair that we feel when we're trying to adjust to a world without this person in it. But 10, 20 years later, it didn't seem like that was a fair term to use. It was something else. It was something that had gotten softer around the edges. It was something that would show up from time to time, but the intervals between would be longer and the intensity would be not quite as extreme. And I, I remember thinking, what comes after grief? What comes after grief? What do we call this thing that comes after grief? And by the time I got down to the Pacific Ocean, I, you know, at a red light to be safe, texted my agent and my editor and said, what do you think about calling this the after grief? And they both got right back to me immediately and said, that's your title. And now we're seeing in the U.S., because the book has been out for five or six months, that it's starting to enter the lexicon. People are talking about the after grief as a, a, the long period that comes. And, and when I'm asked to describe the after grief, I say, 
you know, it starts at a different time for everybody because grief is such an individual process. But I, I, I identify it as the period that begins when we start coming out of that acute, raw, fresh stage of distress and start feeling like there's hope in the world and we can laugh again and we're going to make it through this. And then I think it lasts for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I think that's brilliantly put. And, you know, and I think only sort of, you know, speaking personally and, and sort of talking about my grief so publicly. And and so you can have a lot of people saying, okay, well, your your dad like died 29 years ago or whatever. You know, you're still talking about this. You know, what's, you know, but, but you know, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Because, you know, and I, and I always say that <laughs> the moment you stop uh grieving is probably the, the moment you stop loving those that have died you know it's kind of that that's sort of, that sense of you know okay well i'm not going to bother about you anymore you're gone but that's not the case and it happens you know you, you sort of learn to live with it and and go through it the, for the rest of your life but um yeah i think it's a brilliant title and it kind of hits the nail on the head this is why the introduction to the book is called getting over getting over it because I think one of the most harmful and hurtful phrases that that exists out there in common conversation is, aren't you over it yet? Because I, I don't even know what that means. You know, I, I, I say in the book too, what, what would getting over my parents' deaths look like? Would that mean like I don't think about them or I don't ever talk about them? That's incomprehensible to me. They were my parents. You know, they were very important to me. And so were my grandparents, by the way. Um, they were extremely important to me. I talk about them all the time, and that doesn't mean I'm not over the loss. It means I'm still coming to terms with it. I'm still processing it. But you know, when people say, "Aren't you over it yet?" I, I, I really do believe, and maybe this is your experience too, Mark. That that speaks more to the discomfort of that other person, and and their inability to speak or or you know feel their own grief than it does about how I'm expressing mine. Yeah, absolutely. So from my personal experience, and, you know, if we're not supporting children during the early years of grief, then it can lead on to mental health problems or later on in life. And I know you also believe that unexpressed and mismanaged grief can be a public health issue, you know, which is, this is something I'm hugely passionate about at the moment. And, you know, I did an interview the other day for the BBC and, you know, and I was talking about this because, again, if we're not addressing it and we're not talking about it with you know, with schools and, you know, the society in general, then we're going to have a lot of children, teenagers, like I was myself, walking the streets with, you know, a mental health problem. Um, what do you think we can do to support young people um, through their grief so we're not falling into this trap? I want to tell you, this is my passion too of the moment, and it's extremely important because I work with the women, adult women, and now adult men as well, who did not get what they needed when they were children. And so I'm intimately aware of the effects that it has and that they believe it has on their lives as adults to have not received that. You know, I did a very, very interesting podcast with Brennan Wood, who is the director, the executive director of the Dougie Center in the United States, which is our flagship children's bereavement center, one of the first in the country and the model for many, many others around the world. And Brennan and I... Um, both lost our mothers when we were young. The difference is that Brennan lived in Portland, Oregon at the time. And the Dougie Center started in Portland, Oregon and was local for a while. And so Brennan did get 
support, grief support. Her father brought her to the Dougie Center when she was a teenager. And we lost our mother sort of around the same time. I believe her mom died in the, in the late 80s. And the, we talked in a, this podcast about the difference between our experiences, between having had, in her case, a group of other peers that she could talk with and a facilitator who was sensitive to the needs of grieving children. And my experience, which was just that I was left to figure it out on my own, which meant that I didn't talk about my mother and developed a sense of shame around it for feeling different than the other girls. And it took me a good 10 years before I could really access that grief and start working through it in a therapeutic setting, you know, with a one-on-one with a counselor. And so we know there's, there's a vast body of research on what happens to children who don't get grief support. And it's everything from depression to sleep problems to substance use or abuse later in life um, to relationship problems. And so much depends on the adults who are there to support them after a death. Now, if it is the death of a parent or a sibling, they may not have the support in the home that they need because they are being raised by a grieving parent or parents. But I do believe it is those parents' responsibility then to find those children, someone outside of the family unit who can give them support, whether it's a member of the extended family or a counselor or a teacher or a neighbor or a family friend. It, really only takes one person who is willing to talk with that child about their feelings and and allow them to speak about the person who died that will help them adapt in the future yeah no i love that that all makes complete sense and you know and again i i I discovered that one person when i was about 15 that i could just talk to and he wasn't a counselor he was just someone that came into the school and I sat down and I had a chat with him about my feelings and how I was, you know, getting on. It just makes a huge difference. And um, I just want to say, I was watching an interview earlier with you and it was the people at Google and you kindly referred me on to Stephen Colbert and Anderson Cooper's interview. And that amazing quote of learn to love the thing that you most wish had not happened. And that just, that's it. that just clicked with me. Honestly, it just, it really snapped something inside of me because I've always had people say to me, I don't know how you didn't go a different path after your dad was murdered. And I don't know how you didn't, you know, just completely fall to pieces. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I did fall to pieces, but I did find quickly a way of making peace with what had happened to move on with my life. Um, and I, I didn't really talk about it for many years, you know, so that was my own internalizing and dealing with my own grief in that way. But, you know, there is that sense of when you find that purpose, it just kind of just drives you on. It's it's really incredible. And that quote just, you know, just kind of knocked, knocked me for six. Yeah, that's extraordinary. That was Stephen Colbert talking about the death of his father and two of his brothers in a commercial plane crash when he was, I believe, 10 or 11 years old. And that is, you know, an example of of how one can make sense of what happened. And it's critically important that we do that. But to, to expand on my answer to the last question, which was, what can we do for children? It is really important that adults understand how children grieve, because it's different than adults. Children are developing 
intellectually and emotionally throughout the course of their childhood and adolescence and they need to revisit that loss and talk about it and process it at different times as they come to greater awareness in their minds of what happened and they can handle more emotion more emotionally and so this is something that adults don't realize but you know when if someone lost a parent when they were six or eight and start acting out when they are 16 or 17 when perhaps they get a new piece of information or understand what that death meant in a new way adults don't often connect the dots backwards and say this maybe this is because of what you know what happened when that child was eight for example and it's really important that we do so and we understand that and that there be adults throughout the course of childhood who are willing to walk that path with the child and help them revisit the loss and make new meaning of it as they develop and that's something that is lacking for most children and it's a but it, it's not something that's difficult to give them if they have adults around them who are aware of this and available to them yeah absolutely i completely agree Okay, now moving on to uh, some questions from the children at Winston's Wish. And the first one is, how do you make yourself feel happy when you're feeling sad? Oh, are these? Oh, gosh. Um, whoa, that's such a big question. Um, sometimes it is holding on to the faith that we will be happy again and you know allowing ourselves to be sad i think embedded in that question somewhere is that it's not okay to be sad and we have to find a way to flip the switch and be happy i think the way that you feel happiness again is sometimes by allowing yourself to feel the sadness and letting it pass having faith that it will pass you know children often feel um, because a lot of children don't know how to regulate their own emotions yet that's something that they often learn from their parents a lot of children feel if i start crying i'll never stop so I shouldn't allow myself to start. And this is one of the things that I do hear from adults whose grief was not managed or adequately addressed as children. I hear adults saying, number one, if I start crying, I'll never stop. So I haven't allowed myself to cry, which I think is really the fear of the child, not the, you know, not the risk of the adult, because we will. It's, I mean, it's physiologically impossible to start crying and never stop. So it's really just a metaphor for I'm afraid I'll never stop feeling sad, um, which is not true. But I, I do hear that a lot. You know, if I start crying, I'll never stop. And um, so, you know, we, I create an environment at the retreats where women come and, and they have a safe place to start crying and they may cry really hard for five to seven minutes. But then by mealtime, they'll be sitting around with the other women and laughing again. And so it models for them that it is possible to allow yourself to feel that sadness, to revisit it, to dip into it. It's called dosing in psychological terms, to dose into those feelings, and then you will come out. So I think that if a child is afraid that the sadness won't stop and they need to find happiness again, sometimes they need adults around them to model and to give to model that, you know, that sadness can shade back into happiness again, and also to allow them the space to feel that sadness safely, because we will not grieve unless we feel safe. And this is why I also think, just to go a little bit off topic, Mark, but it's important, um, I think we are going to start seeing some really strong grief responses this spring um, around the one-year anniversary because one-year anniversaries do create sometimes what are called grief spikes or resurgences of grief um, with the first round of COVID deaths and also the lock, the first round of lockdowns because a lot of us were on survival mode last year. And when you're in survival mode, you don't feel safe 
or secure enough to grieve. And as we start coming out of the, you know, I hope the most acute phases of COVID and the lockdowns, people might start feeling safe to have the responses that maybe they weren't able to have last year. Yeah, you're completely right. I think it does feel that, like you say, once we're past that one year period, we're going to have a lot of people who need to talk to someone. And it's it's hugely important that they get the support that they need. So the next one is, what three things are you most thankful for at the moment? Oh, wow. Well, it's been a year here. You know, I live in Los Angeles, which has also been the coronavirus capital of the United States for the past few months. Um, so there's been a lot of loss in this past year, um, I'll just say. And um, so what am I thankful for? Um, I'm thankful for uh, my friends and family, absolutely. The ones that I have been able to see and the ones that I've been in touch with and a, a renewed appreciation for those relationships and their importance. Um, I'm grateful for my creativity because I feel like that's, you know, I, I ask my clients, what's your superpower? What is the, um, what is the thing you can do better than anybody that you know, your rock bottom strength, something that you can't be taken away from you because it's so baked into your DNA that it's an essential part of you. And then at times of real despair, I ask them to revisit their superpower and how can you activate that superpower in your own service. So I think mine is creativity to come up with creative solutions to problems. And the third thing that I'm grateful for is the motherless daughters and the after grief community, which is such an extraordinary group of people who are um, the community is growing and leaders are stepping forward. And at some point, I'm, I'm hoping to train people to lead support groups to help others. Um, worldwide, I, I have a coaching circle right now, an after grief coaching circle. We have women participating right now from the UK, from Dubai. I do calls every Tuesday evening for the motherless daughters community, different topic every week. And women are calling in from Germany, from Chile, from all over the world, from Australia. It's really extraordinary. And I do feel like one of the blessings of this pandemic is that it has forced grief services to go online, which makes them accessible to anyone who has an internet connection. And that you know, to be able to serve people, especially in countries and cultures where it's not permissible to talk about grief has been one of the greatest blessings. So I'll say I'm grateful for that this year as well. There are three amazing things. And I love the whole connection thing and everything that you're doing. And, and you know, do you know what? It's pushed us to have a chat today. Absolutely. And you're, you're doing extraordinary work, Mark. I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful to learn about your podcast and, and know about what you're doing as well. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, the next one is what music lifts your spirits at the moment? <laughs> well, I have a couple playlists that I on Spotify that I use right now. One is called Songs to Write By. Um, I think my, my go-to is always Bruce Springsteen because it connects me, you know, with my roots. So um, I, guess, I guess I'll go with that because there's typically a Bruce Springsteen song on almost every playlist. But I do have another playlist called Cooking Songs because being home so much during the pandemic um, has, you know, kept me in the kitchen quite a bit. And so I've got a playlist of songs that I like to listen to and sing to and dance around the kitchen with when I'm when I'm cooking. Now, Bruce Springsteen's going to get you going, isn't it, wherever you are? Um, okay, my, my final question to you is, what advice would you give to anyone supporting a loved one with their grief through the pandemic? There is um, a, 
a term called companioning, to companion someone through their grief, which is really just to sit and create a safe space for them to talk about how they're feeling, to regard them with curiosity and compassion rather than judgment or criticism, not to try to impose your own ideas about what grief should look like or how grief should go on them. And I find that to be, and to, to allow them space to tell their stories, because what happens after someone dies is that we are running through the facts in our mind, and we're trying to fit them together into a story that feels emotionally and intellectually complete. And when we are dealing with a sudden death or a suicide or a murder, that process is even harder because there may be missing pieces to the story, parts that we don't know or parts that don't make sense to us or we don't understand. And just allowing someone the space to create their story, to ask them gentle questions to help that story come in into a fuller state of being can be extraordinarily helpful. Even for children, with children sometimes it is asking gentle questions, you know, to coax that information from them. But a child needs to, even a child needs to have, if they're old enough to understand narrative, which doesn't come till age about seven or eight, but even a child needs some way of making sense of what happened. And this is why we often see magical thinking occurring, because those are children that don't have help putting a story together. So they put it together in their child mind in a way that makes sense. And it, you know, it, sometimes they, they take responsibility for the death in ways that don't make sense to adults, but make sense to a child. So whether it's a child or an adult friend of yours, giving them the space to create a story that makes sense to them and even helping them along as you can can be extraordinarily helpful no that's wonderful advice and you know a fantastic way to end and i just want to say a huge thank you for you know taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with me today and you know i urge people to go and check out the the after grief um which is available on the 4th of march and i'll put all the uh, relevant show show note information so people can check it out so um yeah thank you so much hope and thank you mark thank you for getting me out of bed very early in the morning because now i have a whole day ahead of me and i do feel that every one of them is a blessing <laughs>